and welcome to episode four of Expected Value, a podcast that goes inside the sports analytics world. I'm Paul Carr from True Media Networks, and our guest this week is Jared Hughes, a relief pitcher for the Philadelphia Phillies. He was a fourth-round pick of the Pirates back in 2006 out of Long Beach State, and he made his Major League debut five years later with Pittsburgh. Now, Jared is in his ninth big league season, and the Phillies are his fourth team after he was claimed off waivers from the Reds last month. In my conversation with Jared, he'll talk about how analytics have progressed during his career, his tendency to pitch low in the zone, and how that works with the launch angle revolution of recent years, what new StatCast data he likes to look at, keys for communicating analytics ideas with players, what he wishes could be quantified, and working with Phillies manager Gabe Kapler, who's a known proponent of analytics. Then, True Media's Jeff Stern and I will be back to react to the interview and wrap things up. Now, without further ado, here's the expected value conversation with the Philadelphia Phillies' Jared Hughes. We are joined on Expected Value by Jared Hughes, pitcher for the Philadelphia Phillies. Jared, welcome to the show. One of the reasons I think you're a good person to talk to is that your career over the last you know, decade plus sort of parallels the rise in baseball data, especially public data. So let's start very broadly. From your perspective, what's kind of the general arc of your interaction with analytics been like? Meaning, how have you seen the data and data you've been interest, interested in change over the last you know, 15 years of your career or so? Well, in the beginning, uh, it was it was certainly just like video and eyesight, and there wasn't a whole lot of uh, anal- analytical analysis going on in terms of players hearing about any of the uh, stuff, other than like maybe velocity or how hard you were throwing. Or uh, that that was about it. But there wasn't even exit velocity talked about early in my career when I was in the minor leagues. So I'd say, as a, as a whole, it's been an incredible learning curve for me, and for most players over the last decade. So let's. Again, be a little bit general, but get as specific as you like with this. What is your prep process like now on a typical game day? You're in the bullpen relief pitcher. What's your typical prep process, more from kind of a, a data standpoint like? So the, the prep process is every, every series, and honestly every day, um, but every series I'll, I'll take a look at the opposing team, and I'll, I'll go from top to bottom in their lineup, uh, including if they have any pitchers that hit well, and kind of just understand if there's any trends they fall into as hitters or if there's any, any weaknesses that I can find a way to exploit. Obviously, I only have a certain number of uh, weapons in my arsenal in terms of what I throw as a pitcher. But I always try to, try to hunt uh, a way to get them out. And I can do that a little bit uh, more thoroughly by seeing their trends. And is that typical now? Like, is that normal for almost every pitcher to, to basically go through that from an analytics standpoint before a game or before a series? I think it's becoming more normal. I, I think that there's a lot of guys that uh, don't want to overcook it, and that is totally respectful as well. Uh, and sometimes I would say I would say it's becoming more normal for every single catcher in the major leagues to be completely prepared uh, based off advanced scouting and, and very, very in-depth advanced scouting using analytics. I think that these catchers know the, know the signs to put down, and it's up to us as pitchers to understand wh- where exactly they mean if they're calling a fastball inside or where exactly they mean if they're calling a breaking ball away. Uh, is it below or is it off or is it in the zone? So I, I do think that the catchers are always prepared. Pitchers are becoming more and more into it and, and are studying more and more to try to uh, be on the same page as the catcher. But as you can see, like there's pitchers that pull out scouting reports 
or it's out of their back pocket now. And a lot of those reports are, are based off uh, advanced analytics. So are you getting together with your catchers before each game or series? Or what's the interaction between uh, your average you know, pitcher and catcher uh, beforehand? So I would say before every game, the starting pitcher meets with the catcher and they discuss what they're going to do along with the coaching staff. They all sit down and, and prep. Um, before every series, all the bullpen pitchers get together and, and discuss that upcoming series. Uh, and usually they split it up with righties and lefties. And that's pretty much common throughout the league. I don't want to get too far into what every team does and the sure. specifics because I feel like there are a lot of secrets out there that need to stay secrets. It's part of the, the competition. But I do, I do really think that the, uh, the preparation is increasing throughout what, what I've seen in my career. It's becoming more and more specific and the data to back up specific trends that people see or the pitchers see in hitters is becoming more specific. And it's, I, I think it's creating uh, just pitchers that are able to go out there and really understand what they're doing with every single pitch. So what's different about preparing, you kind of touched on a little bit, as a reliever, where obviously you don't know exactly when you're coming in or, or who you're going to face, what's different about preparing as a reliever versus what a starter does? Starter has to face guys three times um, or maybe four if they're really cruising. Mm -hmm. As a reliever, it's usually just one time. It's maybe in a couple of innings, but... Uh, but I would say that the differences are uh, starters probably have to mix it up a lot better. A lot of relievers mix it up extremely well, but uh, starters, you're looking at making sure that uh, the hitter is kind of uncomfortable with all four or whatever he pitches. As a reliever, sometimes that's the case as well, but a lot of guys are really just based on their best stuff. They've got two really good out pitches, and they just attack hitters with those best two pitches. Um, some of the best relievers in the league uh, – are just they, they even have one really really just elite out pitch that just they can throw whenever they really want to um honestly i think some of the best relievers in the league don't even have to worry about location they can just pretty much just attack mm -hmm. the heart of the plate and they can beat people with it so your pitching heat map if i look at it and i think this is what yeah. you're known for is pitching low in the zone you have one of the lowest ground ball rates in the league so obviously that's intentional how did you get to that Point. Like, was it a natural thing? Was was there intent behind it? Uh, what kind of pointed you in the direction of, you know, specifically pitching low in the zone? So I was I got drafted as a sinker baller. I've been a I've been a sinker baller since since college. Um, and the the goal for a guy that throws sinkers is to either I mean keep the ball on the ground or get a get him to swing and miss. So for for me, my entire career was about keeping the ball on the ground, finding a way to get hitters to, to hit the ball on the ground. And I found the best way to do that was to keep it at the bottom of the zone. So that is what I just I hunted throughout the minor leagues. I never really had any concrete facts other than just it seemed like they were hitting a bunch of ground balls when I pitched it down. Um, and now it's, it's a little easier to see. But there's certain hitters, when you throw it low, they, they lift it. And those are the guys I'm always, I'm always keeping an eye out for so I can find a way to uh, mix it up to them and, and, and find another way to get them out. So your, your skill set, I think it's safe to say, is at the moment, more valuable just because of the general, you know, revolution, we'll call it, of launch angle and uppercut and hitting fly balls and stuff like that. How how do those two things kind of go together as the game has changed over the last few years? Does your tendency to go low and trying to fight against the what the hitter's trying to do the opposite? It's it, Well, it's constantly a learning curve, too. I'm, I'm still, every time I go out there, I'm trying to get all ground balls or all whiffs. And, and of course, they still find ways to launch it. And uh, or get get that the launch angle a little higher than I like. So it's I'm constantly trying to find ways to keep improving myself, um, and it's not it's not where I need it to be right now. Uh, with that said, 
I think that the there's there's ways to continue to hunt the ground ball by mixing up pitches and 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 executing a little bit better. I know that uh, another way I, I use uh, the the movement data is after after I pitch, I'll usually go online and just check to see how the ball moved to see if it was within like the normal area of where where it typically moves. Uh, and if it, if it, if it is, then usually that means that's a good thing. And if it's not, then maybe there's an adjustment that I need to make. You talked about the movement stats. What other, we'll say, new data, kind of statcast era data for pitchers do you find interesting, whether it's you know, spin rate, spin angle, extension, release points, whatever? What what kind of other things you'll kind of check on either after a start or uh, maybe beforehand as you're prepping? I don't think there's a single one I don't find interesting. I think that uh, I think that there's a lot of pitchers that are starting to look into that, too. I know that uh, driveline baseball, which is based out of like the, the Pacific Northwest, has really mm-hmm. taken off amongst amateur players recently. And what they're trying to do is like increase velocity, increase spin rates, and you're seeing a lot of young players throwing super hard, uh, and and that's great. And I think these guys are starting to become very, very knowledgeable about their own movement specs, be it extension or spin rate, velocity, horizontal, vertical movement, whatever it is. These young players are starting to really recognize what makes them good in terms of those numbers. For me, I'm like the exact opposite of what what driveline would do because I'm I'm looking for like a lower spin rate, more sync. Uh, velocity isn't quite as important for me as it would be a guy that's pitching at the top of the zone. Um, so it's, it's interesting because I find every single one of those uh, specs uh, like fascinating. I, and I find them to uh, really, really help in terms of making adjustments. And sometimes when they're lifting the ball a little bit too much, there's a reason for it. And you can see that the ball is a little flatter uh, and adjustments need to be made. This is our kind of self-serving uh, question of the interview, and we're talking with Jared Hughes, uh, Philadelphia Phillies pitcher. So you've been a you know a strong user of our True Media site and to get into the data. I guess what is the appealing part of the product and just being able to uh, get in there and look at this numbers and and the heat maps for that matter. The user interface is is outstanding. I, I, I'm able to go on there and totally like grasp. Uh, what the trends are for each hitter and uh, at the end of the day like it's a game and we're all trying to play the odds to win so being able to see okay if, if his if his on if his expected woba is in the in the red in an area that that's not good and if it's in a blue in area that means it is good yeah. uh is is something that is really helpful and it's easy to remember because you look at these charts and you're like oh yeah and you can almost, as you match it up with video, get a really good feel for what the hitter's doing. I would assume they're doing the same thing for the pitcher, though. Uh, mm-hmm. So I, I kind of have to keep be cognizant of that, that if I fall into any patterns myself, that hitters are going to start hunting certain pitches. How do you use video relative to heat mats to stats, and how important are they relative to each other? Extremely important. I'd say video is, is, is right up there with uh, any, any statistic. Uh, in, in terms of video, you, you look at, so like every, Every now and then you'll look at a map, right? And you'll or like a little heat map and you'll see that, like, we'll just say it's slugging. And there's a pitch that is just mm-hmm. like, how on earth is he not, how he's slugging like, we'll just say it will thigh high away. But this one was in off. How did he get to that one? Well, you check the video and well, he got jammed and he hit it down the line and he barely got it over the third baseman's head. It's something that's typically an out, but it found, he found a way to get a double out of it. So the slugging was high. That's why that's why the uh, there's some expected stats out there that are that are really good mm-hmm. um, because you can kind of those take exit velocity and launch angle into account. So you can kind of have a better idea of if that hitter really has a strength on that pitch or if there was just a mistake. You are six foot seven, which is obviously tall. Uh, how does that affect your approach pitching? Well, I think that I, I 
think that it helps my sinker uh, because I, mm -hmm. I don't have a super high arm slot, but my okay. arm is uh, kind of, it's out away from my head and it's lower, but since I'm tall with a lower arm slot, I'm still releasing it higher than a lot of people are releasing it. Um, and I think that helps the ball be able to move down further. I, I don't know. Uh, I, I do know that I feel, <laughs> feel like it's a benefit to me. I, I also feel like sometimes my limbs are longer and harder to control. So I have to work a little <laughs> high, harder to, uh, to be able to have control of my body. And that just, that comes in like the weight room and, and pregame preparation. I want to go back to, we'll say probably your early big league career, or I guess kind of first when a lot of the was analytics stats heat map started coming in. What was like, was there an introduction to you or how did, how were people able to kind of get through to you? What are the keys for that early on in your career as you're introduced to these new metrics or way of looking at things? It's been a slow but steady progress of learning. So mm -hmm. early in my career, like in the minor leagues, there was really nothing other than velocity, right? right? Like you just saw how yep. hard you were throwing and you saw the hitter's reaction to it. And that was about it. Um, and early in the major leagues, like 2011, 12, in that, in that time frame, uh, there was there was just like your basic, hey, this is how you should approach this guy. Uh, and, and maybe it was a little bit based off uh, some, some analytics and heat maps, but it wasn't anywhere near where it is now. And it's slowly but surely um, grown. And the way it's been introduced to me is I, originally I started looking at areas, heat maps for ground balls, uh, ways that I could get a hitter to keep the ball on the ground. Mm -hmm. And in certain hitters, it was unique. Like some guys... It might, you might have to throw them up to, to jam them to get a ball on the ground. Or some guys are, are pulling off the ball away. And those are trends they fall into. But other hitters are, are, might be, I mean, just your typical, if you just get it down, they'll hit it on the ground. So the, the ground ball charts are what, eventually, what originally got me into, what else can I find out that's going to help me be able to approach hitters? And, and there, I mean, it, it became like this vast amount of information that I had to sort through and understand what really made me the best pitcher possible and what continues to make me the best pitcher possible. And I try to keep it as simple as possible at the end of the day. I try to get a feel for what type of trends the hitter falls, falls into and what my best odds are in getting him out. For people, we'll just say like myself, who are not players, but are tasked with you know, communicating some different analysis things to players or coaches, what are uh, tips that you would give to those kind of, we'll call them front office types as they communicate with you guys? Wow, that's a, that's a good question. I think the going through the coaching staff is the best way. The coaches, a lot of mm -hmm. them did it, right? A lot of them played, even right. the ones that didn't understand uh, how to communicate with players. Uh, the major league coaching staffs I've dealt with are all outstanding at communication. Um, and it goes no different here in Philadelphia. It's, it's really, really good communication. So a lot of times, I mean, if I have any questions, they have the, they have the answers. And sometimes they have the answers, even if I don't have the question. Uh, so it's... I think the ability to go through the coaching staff to communicate with the player is the best way to do it. Um, but also, I, I really think that, that hunting a player that has a, a good baseball IQ will help them succeed in the major leagues. Um, and, and being able to, uh, honestly, another thing that I think is going to be extremely important is being able to translate uh, advanced analytics and these, mm -hmm. these scouting reports into different languages because we don't all speak mm -hmm. English in the major leagues. It's, it's, yep. There's a bunch of different languages being spoken. So I think those are the best ways to do it. Go through coaches, being able to translate into different languages. Speaking of coaches, Gabe Kapler is your manager in Philadelphia. And we know he's very uh, forward thinking, we'll say. He's 
you know, gets under heat sometimes for maybe taking a pitcher out early or whatever it might be. Uh, you're obviously you've been there less than a month, but what has, what's your impression of him so far kind of from his analytical perspective? He is incredibly impressive. His ability to communicate with the players, his ability to, uh, I mean, he's just, I feel like, uh, that, I, I want to just pour my heart out for Gabe every single day. <laughs> I just I, I can't I can't say enough good things about him. He is just an incredible manager, and I really really believe in him. Uh, I, I I really would just I, I would I, I don't know I'm a big fan. I think that uh, his his main the main thing that he does that I think is so awesome is ability to communicate with the player. Mm. It is it, he's on he's on the same page as every single player. He makes sure that we know what's going on. It's a uh, I, I, I am lucky to have a chance to play for. That's great. What let's kind of look spinning this all forward a little bit. What's something that maybe you wish you had data for or better data for that maybe doesn't exist at the moment? Oh, this is a great question. Okay. And I've got I've got your <laughs> I've got your answer. The answer for that is uh, deception from a pitcher. So you see okay. these guys that that don't stand out in any of their pitch movement stuff or even extension. There's nothing there that's like, okay, this guy is going to uh, dominate or he's not going to dominate. But he finds a way to throw pitches right down the middle and get whiffs. Uh, even if it's like a predominant, it's the same pitch and hitter knows it's coming, still finds a way to get it by the hitter or force bad contact. There's something there in terms of deception or the way the ball comes out of the pitcher's hand. And there's certain guys across the league uh, that just have a knack for it. And, if you, I mean, honestly, a lot of them are, are back-end bullpen arms or elite starters that find a way to they, they miss with location sometimes it's it's not it's just not a great pitch but the hitter looks like uh it was 300 miles an hour didn't stand a chance mm. there's something there in terms of deception that i've yet yeah. to find uh, a number to to explain just thinking about this it's some kind of combo of like location and movement and release and that tunneling, something like that, like all that comes together to make up deception or something. A, yeah, I think tunneling is a big part of it. You, you see some guys that are really into tunneling that that have a like have a knack for missing their location and still getting a whiff. But there's something else there. And I'm talking to hitters. It has to do with how the ball comes out of the pitcher's hand, hmm. um, seeing the ball late. So, I mean, I I think there's some guys that might hide the ball in their jersey as it's coming out of their hand. I don't even know <laughs> what's going on. Like it literally is so hard to see. And I've played catch with a few of these guys. That it's just like, what? It, what is the difference? Because it's not spinning any differently. It's not any harder, but it's just got a little extra nastiness to where the hitter can't see it as well. I think I think there's pitching coaches that understand how to teach that out there. I think we have a few of them here in Philadelphia, and I think that that's that's something that I've never really seen uh, a number for to describe mm-hmm. deception. You mentioned playing catch and. As a fan, I'm sitting in the stands. You see everyone warming up, just throwing the ball back and forth. We also hear these stories of, I was playing catch, and the ball came out of my hand differently, and suddenly Mariano Rivera has a cutter or whatever it is. So right. when you're out there, just it looks like you're just throwing the ball around. Your wheels still turning. You're still fiddling with grips, something like that, even if it looks like you're just playing a you know, long toss or catch before a game or something. I take such a serious approach to uh, – it's called throwing program is what I call call it uh-huh. uh, i don't call it playing catch you call it throwing program and it is exactly what you say i mean uh you you're working on the spin out of your hand you're working on uh really getting the extension the feel uh of getting off your backside and through your lat the, a lot of the mechanical aspects come into play but also uh read just reading the spin that day and same so i'm a reliever say i've thrown two or three straight days it, you can tell a lot of how you're going to 
be that day based on how the throwing program goes. You can say, okay, these are the adjustments I need to make, or I'm having a hard time finishing it. I need to make sure I really finish the pitch today because I might be a little fatigued. Whatever it is, uh, the throwing program is our time as pitchers to practice our craft. Um, some pitchers use it as time to build arm strength, uh, but certainly, certainly practicing the craft uh, is, is a big part of it. And it's basically batting practice for pitchers. Good stuff. One more question before we get into the quick hitters. Yeah. And this is, again, very broad. Like, where do you think the future of baseball generally is going with the uh, emphasis on, et cetera, launch angles, home runs, three true outcomes, all that stuff that's kind of changed the game of the last few years? Mm-hmm. What's next for baseball? Because we've, we've seen over 100 years, it's reaction, 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 back and forth, and, and things tend to balance each other out. What do you kind of see the game going over the next, we'll say, decade or so? Yeah, I think, I think there's going to be rule changes that we've already started seeing like the pitch clock and stuff like that that is going to it's going to change the game a little bit uh i think that obviously i mean it seems that home runs and strikeouts are are really spiking so maybe it keeps going in that direction to where there's even more home runs and strikeouts i i can't really predict that but i think in terms of players in terms of on-field uh personnel you're going to see more guys that are uh extremely physically gifted, like they can maybe even play two positions, but also uh, able to analyze the situation they're in and the moment in the game uh, and use advanced analytics uh, to be able to compete. So full competitive energy, but also full preparation and understanding, okay, I'm going to throw 101 at the top of the zone, but not just at the top of the zone. It's going to be up and away to a little Mm -hmm. above uh, because that's where this guy's highest whiff rate is. Talking with Phillies pitcher Jared Hughes, getting ready to wrap things up here on Expected Value. All right, Jared, a bunch of random questions. Uh, yeah, be as short or as, as long as you like. So you were 25 with the Phillies. Why that number? You know, they asked me, they said, what number you want? I said, I don't care. As long as it's a major league jersey, I'm going to be happy wearing it. So they said, <laughs> how about 25? And I said, yeah, let's do it. 25 sounds good. Do you have a lucky number? No, no lucky number. No. When you enter a game, why do you sprint from the bullpen to the mound? Yeah, this is a long story, actually. So I, I, <laughs> I, I, and I've told it a few times, and I'll try to sum it up. Uh, but I sprint in because it in in AAA. I used to throw like in the mid to high 80s, and I wasn't super uh, successful in the minor leagues. I actually struggled quite a bit, and I was getting close to the end of the road in terms of my minor league career and in terms of my baseball playing career. And this was probably this was about nine years ago. I had a catcher on my AAA team that said, "Jared, man, you need to just you need." to sprint in and throw every pitch as hard as you can and just see what happens, man. You might be all over soon, so you may, may as well just give it your all. And if you get hurt, oh, well, you know, it's almost over anyways. <laughs> so I sprinted in. This is, I remember it was in Rochester, New York, and I sprinted in one game. And I went out there and I just grunted on every single pitch, and I was out of breath, and I was throwing way harder. Uh, it was, I, was, I was up into the 90s. I, I broke a couple bats, and I, I loved it. Kept doing it, and two months later, I was in the major leagues having success. There you go. So you're still doing it. Right. It, it, it makes me a better pitcher. If I, if I jog in or if I, if I, uh, I mean, lollygag on mm-hmm. in there, I'm going to be, I'm definitely going to uh, not have the same velocity and, and same mental, uh, uh, competitive attack approach. You've played a couple games in Mexico with the Reds in April. What was that experience like? It was incredible. I really enjoyed going there, experiencing the culture. Uh, I, I really thought that the, the the fans of the game of baseball down there are so passionate and really enjoyed watching a couple of major league teams go at it. It was, um, <laughs> it was. I'm trying to think. I don't think I had the most success in that series. I missed a couple spots and got knocked around a little bit. 
But at the end of the day, having the opportunity to go play in another country like that is something I'll always remember. Yeah, very cool. According to Baseball Reference, your nickname is Bull. Is that true? And where did you get the nickname? So I've got a few. I've got like 20 nicknames. I embrace <laughs> every nickname everybody anybody ever gives me. Uh, the nickname Bull comes from the, I think it was the bailiff in Night Court, the show. Oh, wow. uh, and I guess I look like him. I'm a big dude and I shave my head occasionally. So I guess I look like Bull. So I had a coach in college that would call me Bull all the time. I also go by ostrich because I look goofy in my run in. I kind of look like an ostrich, even though that's me dead serious, like getting after it. I just look silly. Um, and then another, I'm trying to think, my other nickname is a uh, robot because I do a really good robot impersonation. All right. When you're a kid growing up, who's your favorite athlete? Uh, Any favorite athlete gr- growing up? Baseball, Frank Thomas. I had his cleats. Mm-hmm. I just I really enjoyed watching him play. Um, basketball, Michael Jordan. Tough to beat. Tough to beat. Uh, and finally, what's what's your uh, story of getting called up to the big leagues? How you got the call? So it was at the tail end of that that run I went on in AAA after I started sprinting into games and throwing a little harder. And uh, in my it was the last day of the season, I think, or close to it. And our AAA manager brought me in the office and he says, "Hey, Husey, you're going up, man." And I remember just not even I didn't really even expect it. And I remember being so happy, calling my family, telling everybody. Uh, just it was it was really special and then when i got up to the major leagues my my debut i came in and threw with two outs i threw one pitch it was a ground ball right back to me and i ran it over to first base underhanded it to the first baseman went into the dugout and i just sat there thinking i just threw one pitch in the major leagues i'm a major leaguer and i'll, I'll never forget that feeling uh, that's great one pitch that's it first all that energy all that build up you got one pitch and you were done for the first game huh and I still am trying to find ways to just throw one pitch and get the batter out. I'm telling you, that's the goal. As a sinker baller, that's the goal. Uh, that's great. All right, that's a good story to wrap things up with. Jared Hughes, Philadelphia Phillies pitcher, thank you for joining us here on Expected Value. Thank you for having me on, Paul. Back in the True Media Network studios, I'm Paul Carr, joined now by True Media CTO Jeff Stern. Jeff, what did you take away from the Jared Hughes interview? Uh, I think the thing that just struck me the most is, you know, that it's great to hear um, that players are using data and using analytics and that it's it's a part of their game prep. um, And it's a part of a way for them to gain an on-field advantage by uh, researching and learning from us. Now, you and True Media have been working with teams for a decade, basically. How have you seen the way they use the data change over the last 10 years and how they get the information to players? So, I mean, our relationship has always been with the teams. So I don't have a ton of insight into the specifics, but I can kind of guess a little bit from some of the the questions that we get and the nature of the requests that we get. And I mean, I I think that it's just been steadily, incrementally um, growing how much uh, you know, I think a long time ago, teams probably didn't even think players had any interest in it. And I think they then kind of moved to, oh, they have an interest in it, but we really want to be very careful with the way that we present it and we want to curate it first. Um, and that's still certainly the opinion of a, a lot of people, and there are some good reasons for that. Um, but you also just see a general loosening where some, um, in some cases, you know, for the right player and in the, the right structure and the right organizations, uh, they just let them kind of have a, a pretty free hand um, and, uh, you know, trust that uh, they're kind of ready to take in and, and make use of this. 
And I think Daniel Adler of the Twins talked about this on a couple podcasts ago. Talked about how players come into the minors asking for a lot of these stats and numbers now. Now, Hughes, Jared is in his 30s, and he had to adjust to this, and he's learned how to do it over the course of his career. And the guys coming in now, it's second nature. They have maybe had it in college even, and they just know what these numbers mean a little more intuitively, and they're already asking for it. And it's kind of related to one of the things I took away from this. Jared was talking about Gabe Kapler, the Phillies manager, who's very analytically minded. And from an outside perspective, I think that's the interesting part. Uh, you know, the media really focused, especially early in the season, on maybe unusual decisions Kapler was made, taking pitchers out early, et cetera. Um, and, and that is interesting. It's different from the outside media perspective. And Jared focused really more on the way that Kapler communicates, didn't focus on the numbers or the mindset in that sense, but instead how Kapler relates to coaches and players. And he raved about that as what sets Kapler apart. And to me, that's just another reminder that if you can't get this information across, it doesn't matter if you have the best models or analytics in the world, communication is still king. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, making sure that this is is all communicated properly, um, especially just given sort of the the frames of reference and experience that everybody's coming in with. One thing that I think is kind of a little bit interesting about the acceptance of the analytics is we're not talking about maybe some of what you might traditionally think is the most common, like a wins above replacement or something where we're trying to put an abstract value on on everything so we can add and compare everything. Um, you know, but what Jared was talking about uh, was a lot of things that are more directly measurable and, and directly related to the way they experience the game. He was talking about spin rates and the angle of the spin and the extension where they release the ball. And so it's great that MLB, uh, you know, when we talk about what's changed, um, it's great that since they released StatCast in 2015, um, a lot of extra pieces of this data have been able to be measured. Uh, and I think that makes that communication probably a little bit easier um, because they're, they're communicating uh, with measurements that are very directly related to you know, the ways the players really experience the game. Although to Jared's credit, he was also talking about, um, you know, using these different expected stats because somebody can have a high slugging percentage because of a bloop double, you know. And so there's also, you know, in addition to measuring direct things, there's also a general broader acceptance of some of these models and how they more properly explain, uh, you know, some of the luck or nuance sort of occurrences within the game. Yeah, and a lot of the numbers, like he was talking about expected WOBA, you know, it sounds complicated and it's really fairly intuitive, though. You know, it's basically measuring, you know, quality of contact, location, using launch angle, exit velocity, things like that. So it's pretty easy to get across. And the simpler it is to explain from a, not necessarily a quantitative standpoint, but a qualitative standpoint, the easier they are to use sometimes. All right. Thanks, Jeff. That will wrap things up for this episode of Expected Value. Thanks again to Phillies pitcher Jared Hughes for being our guest. This weekend, we're headed to the Nessus Conference in Boston. We'll get interviews there to share on next week's podcast episode. If you're at the conference, too, come say hi. As always, guest suggestions, questions, and feedback are always welcome via email at expectedvalue at truemedianetworks.com. That's trumedianetworks.com. Or hit us up on Twitter at truemediasports or at Paul Carr. Please don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review the show wherever you get your podcasts. Tell everyone you know to do the same. On behalf of Jeff Stern and everyone at True Media Networks, I'm Paul Carr. Thanks again for listening to Expected Value. 